Good morning to you. Good morning to those who are online. We're so glad that you're with us today. I'm really glad to be back with you. I can't believe that it is August, though. Is anybody else surprised by that? It's all of a sudden, it's August the 1st, right? I hope you've had a good summer. I know that we've still got a few weeks left. Hopefully, you've been able to enjoy some baseball. Anybody been able to go out to a baseball game this year? Yeah, a few of you. Okay, good, good. Still a little opportunity. I want us to, to take a minute and, and, uh, and think if we were to depart our 1940s living room with drum set, and we were to go to a baseball game today, maybe we would all go watch the Cardinals play. Uh, that would be great, wouldn't it, to have a little field trip? Think with me if it was uh, not uh, Tampa Bay that was in town, but Chicago Cubs, right? That, that might be a little more interesting to have a game with, uh, uh, with some rivals. And uh, maybe, let's just say, John, for the sake of church unity, we would all wear red cardinal shirts, okay, for the sake of, of, of unity and, and, and cardinals gear, and we would go out ready to cheer on the cardinals against their arch nemesis, the Cubs, right? And I know we've probably got others that, that uh, would need to come on board to, to, to be a part of church unity for the day. But let me ask you this question. What if instead of going to Bush Stadium, we went to Wrigley Field? Would that, would that be any different of an experience for us on our little trip? It probably would be, right? Because uh, we're wearing Cardinals jerseys, right? And hats and, and gear. And it's one thing to stand in Bush Stadium with 50,000 other people that are right there with you. But it's a little different when you show up and those that are around you are wearing other jerseys. And they're cheering for other players. And in fact, they're hoping for a different outcome of the game than what we're hoping for. I use that as an example to set the stage for what we're looking at today. How many of us feel like things have changed and that we're no longer in our home stadium? How many of us look around and say, I, I have seen such, such uh, uh, major shifts in the way we think, much, such major shifts in what we as a, as a culture have valued, that it's all changed. And now I wonder, I wonder what team are we on? Who are we pulling for? I guess it's a fitting illustration because we, we are pilgrims passing through, aren't we? We know this isn't our, our final destination. We know that, that God is, 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 is preparing a place for us beyond this world. And yet at the same time, here we are. And we are to live on mission together, not defeated, not, 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 not beaten down or worried about what's happening, but, but allowing what we see in the world around us to, to remind us that we're called to be salt and light. That we're called to live with speaking the truth in love, engaging, as Stephanie reminded us earlier, engaging with the conversations and the ideas that are around us, but doing so with the truth of God's Word. And so throughout the summer, we've been in this series, Tough Questions. We've been looking at a, at a different one each week, and uh, we're going to do that through the, the rest of August. And uh, my goal is to help us look uh, together at some... some uh, some issues that are, that, are, that are unfolding in the world around us and to see how can we as believers, those who hold to the Word of God, how can we understand them? How can we engage with them? How can we, in some cases, not be deceived by competing ideologies and worldviews? And that's the basis for the question this morning. Is cultural Marxism 
compatible with the Christian faith. And I know if you, if you got the church email on Friday, you probably were shaking your head saying, what is this all about? This is coming from left field. This seems rather extreme. Or is it? As we stop and we hear some of the dialogues, and whether it's in, a, whether it's in a, the assembly of a, of a state uh, government or whether it's in a school board meeting, we're hearing these topics and these terms that are being used. And we as followers of Jesus Christ, need to be aware of what is taking place around us. We can see the landscape of our nation, and in many ways we can see some dismantling that has occurred in recent years. It's led to division and disagreement, a rather unsettled and chaotic time for our society. On top of that, we have a pandemic and, and the different struggles that have, that have emerged through that. And yet here we are. We're called to be salt and light in a world that desperately needs truth, a world that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only in word, but also in deed. And we are the ones, brothers and sisters, called for a time such as this. And yet we look at ideologies that flow out of something like cultural Marxism, and we see that they, they provide competing worldviews, not complementary ones. And it's not my, my, my goal today to simply take buzzwords and, 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 and somehow become some kind of a, of a cultural warrior. That's, that's not really the idea for the message today. But it is a message to say, let's be aware of what's happening around us. Let's hold it in light of a biblical worldview for the sake of our church, for the sake of our homes, and for the young people that are growing up here with us, that we would be able to take on some of these hard questions, these difficult topics, things that will help them navigate their years ahead. I respect a number of pastors that I listen to. I read, read their books and, and, uh, and, and hear what they have to say. There's, there's a few that I was uh, reading this last week. Men like David Jeremiah, Erwin Lutzer, John MacArthur, many of these guys have, have been in ministry and standing behind pulpits longer than I've been alive. And they're taking a look at some things that are happening underneath this idea of cultural Marxism. And they're saying there are ideologies coming forth that are threatening the church today in ways like they've never seen in their lifetimes. And some of you all are saying, yes, I see it too. You've been around long enough to see the shifts, the changes, the change in thinking. And even as we saw in the first week of our Tough Question series, how these changes can affect the church and the church's, uh, the church's statements of faith, the church's practices and beliefs. And so we, as a body of believers, must, must take a look at what's happening and compare it with a biblical Worldview. If these guys are sounding alarms saying that there are great dangers taking place now, we would be well warned to listen to what they have to say. Well, when we think about this phrase, cultural Marxism, what exactly is it? What do we mean by that phrase? Because I think it, it probably means a lot of things, and we'll, we'll touch on some of that this morning. We must, we must first understand what classical Marxism is. It was, it was developed by a man named Karl Marx. He lived in the 1800s, born in Germany in 1818, and he died in London, England in 1883. And in, in that time period, he was a philosopher, an economist, 
a historian, a sociologist. He was a political theorist, a journalist. And even today, many look back and see him as a socialist revolutionary. He was first known for his economic theories, which have led to socialism and to communism. According to Marx, there are two classes. You may remember this from a sociology class. There's, the, there's two groups, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Sometimes we have a, a way of describing them as those who have and those who have not. Or in modern terms, we would say there are those who are oppressed and there are those who are the oppressors. You've probably heard some of that language even used in recent days. Well, in economic theory, Marx was identifying the oppressors and the oppressed uh, as, as, uh, in, in terms of, of economic and financial means. He said that the oppressors are those who control the means of production. The oppressed are those who are not economically privileged. But as we see, his ideas went far beyond economic principle. In fact, it went to uh, begin to define what was power, what was the, the, the power structure of a particular society, and how these classes were ultimately in conflict with one another. And the only way to, to, to find a, a culture that had equality was to, was to break the class system through revolution. And those are all critical parts that we must understand as we see how it continues to march through history. Well, as those resources, the conflict at one point was over food and housing and employment and education, we see that that conflict and the, the conflict between the classes has grown into other categories as well. I just want to mention that as we look and read what Marxism had to say, what Marx had to say and what he, he taught, we see that at the very core, it's not about unity. It's about dividing people into classes. Again, classic Marxism began as an economic theory, but it's expanded to other areas such as gender and ethnicity, religion, sexual identity. And through that, the, the, uh, the students of these, of these perspectives then try to define what a, what a ruling class is. Sometimes this social power is called the hegemony. And that, that those who, who can mark off that they are in the majority of some of these categories then become not only the ruling class, but they are then viewed also as the oppressors. So you may have heard some of this when, they, when, when people say, let's view the one in power as the one who is male, the one who is white, the one who is heterosexual, the one who maybe in some cases is a Christian. And so you look at each of these categories and say, this is the majority. And then you look at the other and say, well, what about the person that is a female or someone that's a person of color or someone that's not a heterosexual, someone that, that may be transgendered and not cisgendered? All of these different categories have flowed out of this Marxist thinking. And it's very important that we understand how that worldview is placing people once again into categories which cause division. Owen Strand, our students know his name, is one of our speakers at youth camp this year. He explains that in Marxism, you are either an oppressor in different areas of life or you are oppressed. There is no middle ground. 
Your skin color and access to privilege determine which category you're in, not your character. So we begin to see some fundamental differences in the way people view the world and how people view identity and how people view social interaction. Now, I know that this may feel a little bit more like a sociology course, but we're going to move past this, so hang with me, and I think you'll see where this ties in to a biblical worldview. Again, if you go in and look at each of these categories and you see the differences, and then you, you begin to see how people are placed in conflict with one another or labeled by these identities rather than their character, you can see what begins to happen in terms of conflict and division. In fact, these different categories have also spawned an idea known as intersectionality. Maybe you've read something about that where, where someone that is in the minority in several categories, these categories intersect. And so just as we might look at someone and say, well, here's someone that's in the position of privilege or power that is, that is white or is male or is heterosexual, is cisgender, these things. What about the other side? And this is how... Uh, Vody Bauckham would explain it, explains it in his book, Fault Lines. He says, if a black person is considered to have one layer of oppression, a black woman would be considered to have two. And a black lesbian woman would, would have three layers. And so this is how the, this type of thinking where people are separated into these categories, all of a sudden we see lots of division. We see lots of dialogue. We see, uh, we see disunity emerge. This is also known as critical theory. Critical theory and then, of course, the component of critical race theory, which again is something that, that we, we must be aware of because we hear it being talked about in state governments and school board uh, meetings and so forth. And it's a form of critical theory. Entire groups of people placed in categories based not on character, but on skin color, labeled as oppressors or oppressed. Again, the categories, they bring division and resentment. They label people as guilty or innocent. We looked at this last summer, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time just specifically on critical race theory, but I will recommend a book to you. There's one that just came out this summer called Fault Lines, so The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe by Vody Bauckham. It's a book that I'm reading right now, used, and you'll hear me quote from it this morning. I've also been reading one by Owen Strand on the same topic, another one by Jeffrey Johnson, Erwin Lutzer, and also Hillary Morgan Farrar has a chapter in Mama Bear Apologetics on this. So there's a lot of people right now that are writing about this and asking the church to take note of some of these ideologies so that we can be prepared. But the influence of cultural Marxism, again, goes well beyond the issues of race. The second question is this. Once we've uh, begun to identify what is at the core of cultural Marxism, we can ask, well then, how does Marxism view the Christian faith? And really, this is a, a pretty short answer because uh, Karl Marx did not uh, embrace a concept of, of God or his authority or his word. In fact, he would say the first requisite of the happiness of the people is the abolition of religion. And from his thinking, there would be a work called the Communist Manifesto, 
with a co-author that would write these words, communism is that stage of historical development which makes all existing religions superfluous and supersedes them. Communism abolishes eternal truths. It abolishes all religion and all morality. So I hope that's gotten your attention to say, yes, there are significant worldview differences, irreconcilable. And so when we see that there's ideas flowing out of that, it should catch us and, and, and catch our attention to say, let's, let's, let's see what's being said here because we see from where it is coming. You see, in the, in the biblical worldview, we believe in God. And he's the creator, and he has a corresponding authority as the creator. And yet in the Marxist model, the state becomes the provider, the sustainer, the protector, the lawgiver. In short, the state is viewed as God. And we could consider this morning, if we had time, some, some real examples of what this looks like in countries like North Korea and how that affects those who call upon Jesus Christ as Savior. We could also look and see some examples in China. See how, how is the church, how is the body of Christ embraced in a, in a communistic mindset? Others who, who may remember communism in Eastern Europe would have similar stories about how there just wasn't compatibility between the worldview of Marxism or communism with a biblical worldview. Again, these Marxist roots demonstrate a fundamental incompatibility. So if that's the case, as a church, we must understand them enough so that we're not drawn into them. Leads to a third question. How then does a Marxist worldview differ from a biblical worldview? I've given some of that answer already in terms of the authority of God. But let's see how that plays out into the, 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 the scope of everyday life. And so I'm going to begin by giving a, a, a bit of a visual aid. I've, I, I, I took this from a book by Jeffrey Johnson, and it, it, it begins with a, a biblical worldview asking the question, how do we know what reality is? That's, that's what, and if you've had a philosophy class, students that are going to have a philosophy class, you're going to hear the word ontology. And it, it asks the question, what is reality? How do we know what's real? And, and how do we see uh, uh, those within reality correspond with one another? And for the Christian, we say, well, reality begins with God. He's the creator. He's the one that, is, that has designed this world. And so from the very beginning, we have a, God, a Godward look towards what is reality. And so, again, we see the difference if, if one uh, has a humanistic worldview uh, they would not believe in the existence of God or His corresponding authority. We see that God is creator, and all people are created in His image, which is a very important point that we'll, we'll look at again here in, in just a minute. Well, what about the, the topic of epistemology, the lower right-hand corner? That, that, that is just simply a word that asks the question, how do we know what we know? What is, what is the source of our knowledge? We say we, we know something, how did we get that knowledge? That's what that question is asking. Again, for, the, for the, the one that's following the biblical worldview, where do we gain knowledge? How are we taught? From God's Word. That is a source of authority that teaches us. And so we look to God's Word to answer the questions about what it is that we know. Now, in the Marxist 
worldview. Knowledge is gained from one's experience. And so it's not saying that there is an outside authority of knowledge like the Bible. It's my knowledge comes from my own experience. Sometimes this is called standpoint epistemology. It's what, it's what I know because I've been through it. And where that, that gets really difficult is that, that sometimes people say that if you've not been in that standpoint, that you can't speak into a particular situation because you don't fit in that particular category. So it gets very restrictive about who can say what. But again, when you have God's Word as the source of truth, that's the basis in which we interpret life around us. It's how we interpret who we are, our identity, our rights, our responsibilities. All of this flows from worldview. Again, for the Christian, we claim that knowledge comes from the Word of God. It's absolute truth. In fact, week number three of this series, we ask the question, is God's Word reliable? Is it trustworthy? How can we, how can we hold to it with certainty? And now we see that it's in this topic that we see how important that question relates. Bodhi Bauckham in his book said, Our pursuit of justice must also be characterized by a pursuit of truth. Ultimately, that's what we're trying to understand here. What is true? What is true? What is right? Who gets to determine what is true and what is right? Again, we go back to seeing God as authoritative, and that is the crucial difference moving all the way to the other side of the triangle. We see that it's God's law that gives us the, the understanding of what ethics are, what is right and what is wrong. So again, if, if you take a humanistic worldview, then you'd ask the question, well, who then gets to determine ethics? Who determines right and wrong if you don't have that absolute source of authority? And that's where you begin to see that it's a free-for-all. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that, 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 that in many ways there's certain, there's certain areas within, within uh, morality that are, that, are, that are being redefined and changing. And for some of us, it's surprising. But that's when we go back and say, well, what is the source of truth or the source of knowledge? And if it's not God's word and it's coming from the heart of, of humanity, that's where the confusion comes in. That's where the chaos exists. Again, for the Marxist worldview, there is no God. There is no authority except for the state. And the goal is to dissolve structures of authority. Hillary Morgan Farrar says it this way. She says, for Marxism, the end goal is the dissolution of all hierarchies. That includes the family unit, religion, and morality. And let me just pause for one second and ask you, has anybody seen some of that happening lately? Do we look around and see that there is a dissolution? That there is a, a changing of some of what at one time was held dear is now being changed. The Christian worldview holds that God is the ultimate authority. He's given delegated authority to structures which He has designed. And I, I hope particularly our young people in this next section that you'll, you'll, you'll track with me on what we're talking about here. With God being in authority and Him delegating authority into these four entities. These four entities. Let me share them with you. A quote again from Jeffrey Johnson. He says, Because our present institutions derive their delegated authority from God, these institutions, and here are the four, the, the four are this, individualism, family, church, and state 
must first be deconstructed and stripped of their authority in order to fully eliminate God from society. In fact, for Marx, deliverance cannot occur until all traces of God are removed from this world. I know those are strong words, but as we look at this next diagram, I think you'll see that it only makes sense. Again, we have the triangle. We see from a biblical worldview, there's God, creator, one who has authority, his word, which gives direction, his law, which determines right and wrong, and it's his delegated authority into these four entities. Sometimes they're referred to as institutions, that he has delegated authority to each one of them. Let's look at them, and let's compare and contrast what that looks like from a humanistic worldview. So we start with the individual. And according to a biblical worldview, each person is created in God's image. Genesis 1:27 says this, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And folks, I want to tell you that is so important. If 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 we take a humanistic worldview, we don't believe that that that, that people are created in the image of God. And so therefore, the, the value of a human is then debated, and life is cheap. And there's this understanding, well, how did we get here in the first place? And if it's just a, a series of, 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 of random accidents and cosmic accidents that evolved into what we are today, there is not this, this value placed on the human being. But I want to tell you, folks, you can look around this room, and every person you see is created in the image of God. And we could walk over, or maybe right over to Wildwood Town Center and get out and see everybody coming in and out of the store. Every one of them created in God's image. And we could go downtown to St. Louis, and we could, we could walk through the streets, and the people we interact with, every single one of them created in God's image. We could get on an airplane and go to the uttermost parts of the world. And whoever we encounter, every last one of them created in the image of God. And because of that, their lives have worth and value. And so that's the difference. We see that being created in the image of God means these three things. One, it gives us a mental capacity. The ability to have the ability to reason and to choose. It's a reflection of God's intellect. We have a moral capacity, which is a reflection of God's holiness, meaning that we have a moral obligation. We have a moral understanding. It's just within us. In fact, some people call it the moral compass. And I know that at times people may differ on what exactly is right and wrong, but nonetheless, we all understand that there has to be right and wrong. Then there's a social capacity. We reflect a triune nature of God. He's Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we have this, this nature, God's nature within us, that, that we are to connect with Him and with others. It's part of that social capacity. So this is what it means to be image bearers. And, and because we are image bearers, we have corresponding rights. Rights such as the right to life, the right to protect life, the right to work and provide for one's life. The right to marry and raise a family. To see new life created. The right to worship God according to one's conscience, considering our spiritual lives. These are, these are what we might reference as inalienable human rights. And they're based on the fact that we are image bearers. 
And along with these rights, there are also responsibilities. We're all created in God's image. We're responsible to Him as our Creator. And He reflects this in His law. Just think about the Ten Commandments. They tell us. They tell us how to relate to Him. They tell us how to relate to one another. Read back through the Ten Commandments. You'll see that our Creator God has given us instruction for living as His image bearers. We have rights. We have responsibilities. We are responsible to heed God's instruction on how we are to live. We don't have the freedom to just make things up the way we want them to be. Not for those of us that are, that are considering the biblical worldview. We understand that we are under His authority. There's principles that govern our actions. And these include, within the individual, the understanding of human sexuality. The Bible teaches a design. A design for a monogamous marriage between a husband and a wife. And that sexual relationships outside of this can be defined as, as fornication or adultery or homosexuality. These, the Bible says, are sin. A humanistic worldview rejects the authority of God, rejects those kinds of boundaries, rejects even the understanding of sin, and seeks a more relativistic way of living. Well, that's the entity of the individual. Let's now look at the family. And we see that God, has He given a design for the family? Absolutely. And we see it at the very beginning of creation that God desired for there to be a man and a woman, desired for, for the world to be populated uh, through them. He has told us that a, that, 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 a, that a husband and wife are to be in covenant with one another. A lifelong, till death do us part covenant is His plan. We see that marriage is given as a picture of Christ and the church. That a husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Think about that. What kind of love did Christ demonstrate for the church? Sacrificial love. And a husband is called to sacrifice his life and his desires. To put the needs of his wife above his own. This is the call to be a husband. A wife is called to support and to respect her husband. They are each to live together in a gracious and affirming way, building one another up as one flesh. And parents, they are to raise their children in the teaching and admonition of the Lord. In fact, there's a passage in Ephesians chapter 6 that, that gives some description to this. And we see that there's roles and responsibilities for the children and for the parents. It says in verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And young people, listen to the rest of this verse. So that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. It's saying that, that for these children that say, I'm going to honor my mom and dad. I'm going to obey them. I'm going to listen to them while I'm living under their authority. I'm going to respect that because it's, again, it's delegated authority from God. And for those who, who receive it, they find blessing. For those who reject it, they don't find that blessing. And so I think this is such an important passage for, for young people, but it also speaks to parents. It says, fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I know there's a lot we could say about this, could have a whole sermon on, on this passage. But the, the, the bottom line is God has given a design. 
And within the biblical worldview, we can, we can look at these four entities and say, yes, there's a design for the family. And we look to it as, 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 as part of God's delegated authority into our lives. And yet we see out of these worldly, these uh, humanistic worldviews, that there's other beliefs about the family. In fact, I, I mentioned this last year, that out of the organization Black Lives Matter, which uh, refers to itself uh, themselves as trained Marxists, and on their website referred to one another as comrades, that, that they've gone well beyond the idea of, of wanting to bring about racial reconciliation. That's, that's what we think of, but we dig a little deeper, and their website used to say, I don't know if they still kept this up, but it said, last year we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Okay, so this is an organization that's, that's going right at the heart. What does it mean to be a family? And they, they go in to, to talk about uh, human sexuality and gender identity and all these other things that are well beyond, uh, beyond uh, racial reconciliation. Why did they do that? Because they said, we are trained Marxists. What did Karl Marx say about the family? He said the relationship between parents and children is, and I quote, disgusting. He didn't like it at all. Thankfully, many people have begun to see through some of these other objectives, these parts of the agendas that, that, uh, that are harmful. What's my point here? These worldviews are not compatible with a biblical worldview in considering the family. Let's look next at the state, the government. We know that the Bible also speaks to this. There is a role for the government and, and those who serve in the government. They have been placed there. Again, as I read this next passage, look for the idea of delegated authority. Okay, Romans 13. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. Since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Did you catch that? So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For it is God's servant for your good. So again, does the biblical worldview inform us? on why there is government and why God created it and how those that are, that are in charge of government are to respond to those they lead. Now, I know we could, we could go off on you know, when they are not leading well or when they violate God's word. I know there's other topics we could look at, but the general principle here is that God delegated authority to governments to do good and to protect the people that they serve. But the Marxist worldview has a different view. In fact, it's not a delegated authority. It is the authority. There is no private property. The state owns it all. There is no private business. The state owns the means of production. And so we see that the authority structures within the state are very different under that mindset. They even control things such as the freedom of speech and other freedoms that we might see as those that would be uh, enjoyed. Well, the Marxist worldview also has no room for the fourth entity, the entity of the church. Now, we would look at that and say, well, that kind of makes sense since they're not putting God in the equation. And yet, we, in a biblical worldview, can't ignore that. Because, again, delegated authority that's been placed in the church, that we represent Jesus Christ. We are part of the family of God. He calls us His royal priesthood. 
meaning that we are heirs to the king, and we are also priests, meaning that there's no other intermediary. We go straight to the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I have a unique role towards one another. We have the one another's of the New Testament that help us know how to love for one another, how to care for one another, to encourage one another, to help one another. We have responsibility together. We identify those who profess Jesus Christ as Savior. We come together and agree on what a a biblical statement of faith is all about. We accept a commission that Jesus has given us to go into all the world and make disciples, to share the truth of the gospel, but to do so, what does it say in Ephesians? To speak the truth in love. We are to be compassionate. We are to be life-giving. All of these are responsibilities given to the church, and we are accountable to God to fulfill them towards one another and towards the world around us. So those are the four entities. Well, what happens when they are dismantled? Quickly. The individual life is not seen as created in the image of God. That's where we can come to grips with a topic like abortion. We see that people are oppressed, they are neglected, they are abused. Injustice increases because life is viewed as cheap. People aren't viewed, even people in the womb, as image bearers of God. Because if they are, it all changes in terms of value and worth and care and compassion. What about the family? Have we seen parts of the family structure dismantled? We can go back to the 1960s and see the the sexual revolution. We can see cohabitation rates increasing. We can see uh, the the, the idea of the no-fault divorce, and then all of a sudden the family structure changes so dramatically that for, for many, many children growing up in the world today, it's a fatherless home. Beyond this, marriage has been redefined. A few years ago, redefined beyond a man and a woman in our country. Same-sex marriage. You know what I think is coming next? I think legalized polygamy is next. Uh, We hear not of only couples wanting to be married, but thruples, three people who want to be in marriage together. We see what happens when God's design is not viewed as authoritative. People can get very creative, can't they, in what they want. Gender is another topic when we think about the life of the individual. Gender is being redefined as something which is fluid and changeable. We have biological men competing in athletic competitions. Even tomorrow, a weightlifter in the Olympics is uh, uh, one who was born as a male and and identifies now as a woman and is going to be competing on the world stage. On Friday, the International Olympic Committee said that trans women are women and should compete in women's sports. The transgender ideology has brought about terms such as pregnant people. Not just, it's no longer acceptable just to say pregnant women. It's pregnant people because we can't believe anymore, I suppose, that pregnancy is only for a woman, that it's now open for a man. In fact, on your smartphones this next year, you may find a new emoji. You know what emoji is, the little pictures. You may find one of a pregnant man that's being developed that will be placed on your phone in case you want to use that. Things are changing. Things are changing. And we look at each of these institutions, the individual, the family. Uh, We look at the state, the church. We see all of the change. 
Those of us who hold to a biblical worldview may no longer feel like we're in the home stadium, right? And the jersey we're wearing may not be the one that everybody else is cheering for. Does that mean we change jerseys? Does that mean that the church all of a sudden just redefines and coalesces to what the the next bright idea is that emerges out of the culture? No, no. Only if we want to switch the authority to be people and not God. For we are God's people. And we are called to have Him as our authority in creating a worldview for us to understand the world that we're living in as well as our rights and responsibilities as we live here. It's a biblical worldview. So all of this dismantling of the truth, we have to be alert. We have to understand what the other belief systems are so that we, listen to me young people, are not deceived. You're growing up in a time which is challenging, more challenging than the days that your parents and grandparents grew up in. And for you to stand firm is going to look a little different than standing firm 20, 30, 40 years ago. But I want you to know you're not alone. You are, you are the generation that God is going to use to be salt and light, to provide against that backdrop of chaos and confusion. You are going to embody truth and light and true compassion and true justice and real concern and care for the brokenness of the world around you. You're not going to be those that are putting people into categories and and calling names and, and creating chaos. No, you will be part of those who are bringing the balm, the healing power of the gospel. So I encourage you, even though you're going to be in situations where many are against you, and you you very likely will be ridiculed for the stand that you're taking. You may be called name, a name or two for the views that you represent. I encourage you to stand firm, stand firm, and to speak the truth in love. Let me give you a couple of other verses. I know I'm out of time, and then we're going to wrap up. Colossians 2.8 is a word for us today. It says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition. We've been looking at a lot of that today. Based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. See, there's always been humanistic worldviews. We just happened to bring one into a sharper focus this morning to evaluate. 2 Corinthians 10 says in verse 4, We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive. Why? To obey Christ. Again, a word of authority. His authority in our lives, even the way we think, because thoughts lead to what? Actions every time. Every time thoughts lead to action. That's why the battle for the mind and the heart is so critical for our church, for our families, for our young people. Now, I know some might say, well, you know, there's, there's a bit of an appeal to Marxism because it, it seemingly looks out for the disadvantaged. So is there something there that we should learn from? And I say categorically, no, because our worldview also looks out for the oppressed and the disadvantaged. The biblical worldview is much greater in this topic. In fact, we serve a Savior who loved the disadvantaged and, and, and met the deepest need that a human could ever have by laying his life down so that we could be saved from the bondage and the penalty of sin. Beyond that, Jesus demonstrated a, a great 
love for those who are marginalized. We see his mercy towards those who are sick or those who are hungry, to those who are looked down upon, such as the Samaritans. No, we don't need to adopt the ideas of Karl Marx. We need to stand firm on the truth of Jesus Christ. And these aren't just New Testament ideals. We could go back to the third book of the Bible, Leviticus chapter 19. Here's God's heart for the disadvantaged. Do not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not jeopardize your neighbor's life. What's the corresponding authority? I am the Lord. Verse 17, do not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly and you will not incur guilt because of him. Again, speaking of slander. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. Again, the authority, I am the Lord. Who else would say these words? You recall Jesus giving the royal law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We are called to be people of compassion. We are called to be people who care, who help, who assist. And I know that, that, that in this world today, prejudicial behavior still exists in our country and all over the world. We see examples of racism, of sexism, of discrimination. We see the objectification of women and the discrimination of people based on ethnicity. These are all examples of injustice, and there is no room in the biblical worldview for any of it. None of it. It's not from God. In Romans chapter 2, it says, there is no favoritism with God. This is God's character. It's to be reflected through His people. James chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith and our glorious Lord Jesus. Prejudice, prejudicial attitudes and words, injustice, none of this is a part of the biblical worldview. Our worldview doesn't divide people up into groups and classes based on external factors. We are called, we are called to extend the gospel which brings people together as one in Christ. In Galatians 3, the last verse of the day that I'll read is this. Verse 28, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, the gospel really promotes the ultimate unity for all people everywhere. Image bearers of God to be reconciled in Jesus Christ. Now one pastor said, how should we respond? And he gave three options, all starting with W, easy to remember. First one is this, you can withdraw. Sure, we could be like monks and just withdraw from society. Or we could wage war. We could be culture warriors, right? Just go at it. But there's a third one. We can witness. We can witness through our words and our deeds the truth and the hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but that last one really sounds a lot like the commission that you and I 
have been given. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that it is so complete that it even speaks in a timeless way to to capture the thinking throughout the ages. And in each time, point us back to your design. We thank you for being a loving God, a God who loves this world so much that he would send his son. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be ambassadors of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, not to falter in this day. Help us, Lord, by your strength to stand firm. Give us eyes of discernment, particularly, Lord, for our young people among us to be able to navigate these critical, critical issues. God, would you saturate us with your word? And would you empower us with the strength of your Holy Spirit that we may be found faithful for the time in which we have remaining in this world. God, draw us close together that we may encourage and support. And yet also, Lord, send us out that we may take the truth and speak it widely with compassion, with love, with hope. Father, would you use us? Would you apply these words to us now? We pray this in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said.